0: Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 253 for the 30th of September, 2016. I'm Chester Wisneski here once again with my friend John Shire. Welcome back, John. Thanks, Chester. It was uh, good seeing you live and
1: in person this week in San Francisco, but it's also good to be back in uh, Chat Chat Studio East.
0: <laughs> yeah it was it was nice seeing it we probably should have recorded this when we were both in the same room but uh strangely the way we do our editing it it's actually easier to do this remotely where we have two separate tracks we'll have to see how that goes next week as uh, you and i will both be in denver Colorado at the virus bulletin conference which is our industry trade conference for uh for antivirus firms my head's already hurting is basically what i'm thinking the the, the talks are quite technical uh, and lots of good friends to see and that kind of thing and it'll it'll be a pretty intense week but we'll we'll try to do a chat chat from there as well yeah
1: i'm looking forward to it, and I think it's uh, one of these great events where you know people don't always know that we do get together, we do share our research, we we are friends with the adversary, if you will, just in, in under the guise of making us all safer together.
0: Well, uh, let's start out with the first story, which you know when Brian Krebs, the journalist at KrebsOnSecurity.com, isn't telling you that your data has been found on some hacked server somewhere, uh, he's also drawing the ire uh, of of hackers, of course, and they threw 600 plus gigabits per second of traffic at his website last. Last week to take him down. What are your thoughts on this? Is this is this uh, indicative of we're gonna you know we're gonna see a lot more of this down the road? Is, is is DDoS the weapon of choice? It certainly appears that way, doesn't it? In this case, he you know he basically published a story that
1: led to the arrest of a couple people in Israel, and the DDoS, while not completely confirmed, do seem to be associated with that you know they're one of the hackers handles was mentioned in one of the ddos in some of the ddos packets so yeah it's really hard to tell isn't it because ddos has been around for a while and but this is this is the whopper of all DDoSes.
0: well yeah they're they're the the 600 gigabits hit around the time that two People he had identified to Israeli eighteen-year-old uh, men were arrested, and as you mentioned, uh, one of their handles was. You now, the conference you and I were at, we we saw uh, Dale Drew from Level Three and Andy Ellis from Akamai uh, um, chatting a little bit about this, and it appears to be you know hacked DVRs and well, I guess we would call IoT devices. Is there anything we can do about that? Right, I mean, how how do we how do I identify which of these things need to be patched, and are there patches, and how do we how do we do it?
1: That's that can be a long, complicated answer, but I'll attempt to make it somewhat succinct. With a lot of these, you know, you call them IoT devices, and I think it's fair, but I th- I do think also people tend to carve them off, and they think when I- when they think IoT, they think more of, you know, the Nest thermostats and the Barbies and-, and those kinds of things. But these are definitely devices on the internet that are not necessarily just computers, right? So IP cameras, DVRs, as you said. And unfortunately, some of them come from the factory with things like default or weak passwords, hard-coded passwords, uh, unpatchable operating systems. And when you put that online, you're just really asking for trouble because with things like Shodan, you can find these things en masse. And as this particular group of enterprising criminals have discovered, put software on them and make them do bad things.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the manufacturer, of course, didn't even have an updating mechanism built into the devices as far as like uh, being able to automatically retrieve updates. And I believe it was uh, Dale who mentioned that they had contacted the manufacturer, uh, made them aware of the problem. And of course, the manufacturer has released an updated firmware package, but they have no ability to notify the customers. They have no ability to notify the devices. So they're really just hoping that anybody who happens to have one of these white box DVRs might hear about the story and might know what website to go to, to maybe dive a firmware package that they may or may not know how to load
1: <laughs> yeah that's just it right I mean I'm recording this on uh, a small portable you know microphone zoom mic and you know for me to get firmware for that device no it's not connected but I had to actually have the presence of mind to go to the site and look up to see if there were any firmware updates available and this is the same kind of thing with these devices right uh, be- if you don't have a clear mechanism for notification and update Uh, You may never get an update for these devices, and that is a real problem because vulnerabilities will continue to be found in those types of devices. And once you buy them, it's kind of like a new car or an Android device. If you want an update, you have to buy a new one.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the the uh, I'm going to a, a, an IoT summit being organized by the Department of Commerce on IoT security in Austin, Texas in a couple weeks. So we're going to try to see what we can do to provide better guidelines for IoT manufacturers to ensure that these types of things don't happen. And while we're talking about it, let's talk about D-Link for a moment. There was some research on the Slice of Kimchi blog about the D-Link DWR932B, is in beta, although it's not a beta device. It's something you might buy at the store that's not in beta it's got a bit of a, a list of issues. And I mean, I think this is really indicative of what we're just talking about, right? You, you buy this little LTE router, my you know, the brand trade name, people often call these things MiFi devices. I have several of them uh, for different networks that I use. And, you know, I want to get cellular data while I'm on the road and just slip a SIM chip into it, right? And the summary of the vulnerabilities in this particular D-Link product includes backdoor accounts, a backdoor, plain and simple, uh, default WPS pin, uh, weak WPS pin generation, uh, leaks a no IP account name. Daemon password it has multiple vulnerabilities in its HTTP daemon. Uh, has remote firmware over-the-air capabilities with hard-coded password. Security removed from the universal plug-and-play functionality. I mean, this this sounds like a train wreck. <laughs>
1: It sure does. Uh, you know, you sent me the link to have a look at the story and you said just skim it. I, I just did. I didn't get past the summary of vulnerabilities because that really tells me all I need to know about this particular device and the security issues. The problem is, as we've seen with a lot of these devices that get produced is security is just not built in from the beginning. It's not part of the design spec. And, and with that, with the lack of upgradability in a lot of these devices it is just going to introduce stuff like this, right? Uh, with massive amounts of vulnerabilities and security issues that again, may or may not get fixed. And that, that translates to a lot of these other types of IoT devices that we were just talking about, the DVRs, the IP cameras. Some industrial control systems do come to mind as well, right? The, the air gap that's supposed to exist between some of these
0: systems is not so much of an air gap as uh, you know maybe a pseudo air gap. Well, fortunately, the hard-coded passwords uh, are, for the admin account, the password is admin. And for the root account, though, it's not admin, at least. The root account's hard-coded password is 1234. The, The sad thing here is, you know, this this device does have over the air firmware capabilities but after 90 more than 90 days D-Link has basically said for customers that have these devices there's no patch available and if they have any questions they should contact their local D-Link service center so rather than actually release a fixed firmware they're basically just telling people to call tech support i'm not sure what tech support's going to do for you if you call them but if you own one of these devices uh, and you don't immediately light it on fire um, i guess you can contact D-Link about it but but you know that that remote firmware update capability is only good if you actually release a firmware. And then on top of that, it turns out the website that currently hosts the firmware updates uh, is running a a certificate that's more than a year and a half expired for the HTTPS certificate. So the device can't contact it anyway because the cert is expired.
1: Yeah. And it's, again, we've talked about security warranties in the past, and and you're a big proponent of that. I, I think this is a great example of that, where you buy a device, and what is your security warranty with respect to the upgradability, updatability, and, and future long-term support of that device? There is none, as we can see in this case. You know, I think if you do call support, the I'm afraid they may say, go buy a new device. And that's just not really acceptable in this day and age when we do already have the capabilities. We know how to do this stuff right. We know how to introduce things like SDLC into, uh, you know, the coding process and, and manufacture of products there's just no excuse for this
0: well the real issue is do we care and when we're buying these things i think manufacturers have realized that we don't care enough to just you know pick one vendor over another because uh, of those security promises if they're ever made and sadly those of us that do care have no way to judge before purchasing something whether it has those capabilities or not so uh, stay tuned i mean obviously people that listen to the chat chat care about this more than the average person out there and we are actively engaging with many different groups in the community to see what we can do about these problems because it it would be nice to at least have enough information as a consumer to make a, a good decision at the point of purchase rather than having to read about it on a blog a year after you buy it and then go, what do I do with this thing? I guess I buy another one. Uh, that that's, seems like a pretty crappy answer.
1: At least there's a conversation being started and we'll see what comes out of your, uh, your attendance at the Austin Summit. So hopefully good stuff. Yeah. Hopefully
0: now we've heard a lot about Swift banking fraud over the last uh, few months. Now, uh, people that aren't familiar with Swift, it's sort of the uh, international clearinghouse for moving money between financial institutions. So if if Chase Bank needs to send money to the Bank of Thailand, they would often do that through the Swift system. And this system, uh, you know, made headlines back in March when uh, eighty one million dollars was stolen from a Bangladeshi bank through some fraudulent transactions on the Swift network. And and people have been kind. Of demanding that you know it not just be left up to the banks to secure these systems that that there should be more security built in. Looks like they're making some progress on this. And the Swift people uh, uh, announced uh, kind of a, I guess a new a new standard.
1: Yeah, they did. It, it was at Swift's annual conference this week that the CEO basically described some recent breaches that hadn't been publicized before, which this is good news, right? So. Now that there's been these public breaches, I guess banks, the security teams over there in SWIFT, were paying a bit more attention and managed to catch some criminals in the act. And uh, while they didn't, they don't know who the exact criminals are. At least it's not told in this story. They were able to stop the transfers; no money was lost, and they were able to identify some uh, banks that were compromised and some some methods of of operation. Uh, the problem with SWIFT, however, is a lot of their security really relies on obscurity, right? This is one of these very back-end transfer protocols that uh, banks use. And up until now, hasn't, uh, I guess, received enough scrutiny and detail, attention to detail to, to warrant you know, traditional maybe security measures. So yes, they, they are going through a process by which they're going to require any company to participate in SWIFT to comply to some standards and then also uh, comply to some random audits to make sure that everybody's in compliance.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's a good thing. It's like all things in banking taking a little bit long. I mean, the new, uh, um, I guess, ratings as to whether you're compliant with the new standards and things won't really kick in until January of 2018. So we have another, you know, 15 months to kind of keep our fingers crossed uh, and not really know what the security at the other financial institution we're doing business with may be. But, I, I, you know, all in all, I have to say, you know, for again, I guess for the banking industry to respond within a year and have it only take one more year doesn't sound great but it's probably about the best we can expect and, and I think we should be supportive of these kinds of things where there's no requirement on Swift I mean every one of these cases has been banks having poor standards not having multi-factor not having air gaps etc cetera, etc cetera, that have allowed the, them to be compromised but Swift's taking some responsibility anyway and uh, you know I guess that's a good thing
1: yeah. So one year is better than two years or five years or never. Right. So I do like one quote from Swift, which basically said, you know, you need basic hygiene, multi-factor authentication, securing your credentials, updating your operating system software. You know, some people would call that that best practices. I call that step one. But at least, you know, they're recognizing that there are things you can do at the very foundation to secure the protocol
0: and the businesses that they're dealing with. While we're talking about practices, let's talk about WoSign and StartCom. Sure. A lot of us have been very uncomfortable for some time about the number of certificate authorities that are in our browser that we automatically trust certificates that they sign. And uh, WoSign... uh, it looks like they're going to be removed from Mozilla's browser, Firefox. And you've heard me rant about certificates quite a lot in the past. Um, maybe I'll, I'll let you maybe introduce it a little bit for me, and then I'll, I'll chime in with my own thoughts.
1: Yeah, so in this particular case, it seems that uh, WoSign, who also acquired StartCom, another CA a while back, basically they were allowing, without any kind of verification, anyone to obtain a certificate for a domain. So the way that this was found originally was by a researcher who was able to get a subdomain for the University of Central Florida, med.ucf.edu. But he also was able to acquire one for www. And then he thought, well, that's not right. Let's see, you know, if I can get something for another domain, which I have absolutely zero connection to. And he was able to get certificates for github.com, github.io, as well as www.github.io. So all of that just means that the certificate authority that he was getting certificates from was doing zero verification and just basically issuing them at, at will. And so that's the problem is there's there's a lot of CAs out there that have been in the past provably doing this
0: kind of behavior or or worse, and this is really where the issue stands, isn't it? Well, they were doing some verification. This weren't doing it properly. And sure, where this became a more serious issue is, you know, they when they acquired that UCF and that GitHub certificate, they reported the UCF one as sort of bait to see whether WoSign's practices would allow them to discover other domains that had been misissued using the same bug. When they weren't able to discover that or didn't disclose that they had discovered that, that was when it became a more serious issue. Because I think, you know, domain validation bugs have happened in the past. In fact, they've happened with StartCom in the past. And... And usually, they're addressed right away, and then any certificates that were misissued are identified and revoked. And in this case, because they couldn't identify and revoke the other misissued certificates, then it started kind of shaking trust in the whole thing. And there was a lot of other dodgy behavior going on. They were backdating certificates that were signed using a SHA-1 certificate, which was banned as of January 2016 so that they could continue to sell these certificates that aren't supposed to be issued. They didn't disclose that they had bought Start.com, which a change of ownership is required under the Certificate Authority policies for Mozilla, but also for, for Chrome and other browsers as well. Uh, there was a lot of dodgy things going on here. And, uh, you know, I think, I hope this is just the beginning of a much longer process of, of knocking out a lot of these certificate authorities. There's way too many of them. I don't know how I'm supposed to decide that I trust 700 random companies around the world to validate people's identity on my behalf. Uh, I'm, okay, I'll stop because I could just do two hours on why <laughs> I think certificates are broken. But uh, let's just say WoSign and StartCom will be outside, out of Mozilla's Firefox. And of course uh, they. They have to wait at least a year before they can reapply to become a trusted CA again. And I, I think this is a good thing. And I, I hope this puts the other CAs on notice uh, the same way that our friends at SWIFT were on notice about fraud and noticed their fraud. Maybe the other CAs will take this a lot more seriously so they don't have their privileges revoked as well. Tomorrow is Cybersecurity Awareness Month begins. Uh, the whole month of October in much of the Northern Hemisphere uh, is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And we sort of celebrated around the world at Sophos and with Naked Security. And uh, I noticed something that uh, I thought was a great campaign being run through the National Cybersecurity Alliance called Lock Down Your Login including a dancing banana. Uh, what what do you have planned for Cybersecurity Awareness Month? Uh,
1: well, the the obvious things, obviously, you know, we, we are participating in a lot of conferences at this time of year, and it's personally trying to spread the word, right? Trying to get everybody in tune with Cybersecurity Awareness Month to start thinking about just the way they behave online and, and giving them examples of how they can do things better. And, uh, you know... I like these campaigns coming out of this particular group because they're really trying to make this stuff way more accessible than just simply a bunch of security geeks, you know, waving their fists in the air saying, do it better.
0: Yeah. And so this Lockdown Your Login campaign is really encouraging people to use multi-factor authentication or two-step authentication. That's something that we've not had a lot of success with uh, getting the message out to the general public. And and even though, you know, you can use two-factor for your Yahoo or Google or Microsoft accounts, uh, very few people are actually adopting it from the numbers we've seen. So maybe this will be an opportunity for us to take that to the public. Um, I'm not sure the dancing bananas necessarily going to solve it but but certainly raising awareness about it in a, in a fun way to address children and in, in, the, in the general market I think is a good thing and I encourage all of our listeners to get out there and use this opportunity uh, you know send the video link around uh, you can go to uh, staysafeonline.org it's linked to from there it's out on YouTube as well and uh, you know use it as an opportunity to ask your friends and your family about whether they use a password uh, the same password on all their accounts and and these types of things and maybe give them a little nudge and a little help and some friendly advice on how to stay safer uh, this October.
1: Listen, if a dancing banana is the one thing that tips this over the edge, then I'm all for it.
0: <laughs> that concludes Sofa Security Chat Chat 253. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sofas.com. All of our podcasts are available on RSS, they're on iTunes, the TuneIn app, the Google Play Store, and anywhere else fine podcasts are found, including soundcloudcom Sofa Security. And until next time, stay secure. I'm think-